Gentlemen, you need not worry. You wonder who I am. Starman is the name. I now promise to save your planet Earth. I shall try to destroy all of the Kulamonians. Wish me luck. I go now. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Infernal Brains podcast. I'm Tars Tarkas from TarsTarkas.net. And I'm Todd Statman from Die Danger, Die Die Kill, a.k.a. 40K. And we're back again with yet another exciting episode full of weird and wonderful stuff from around the globe. Thrills, chills, and spills in this instance. Literally. Today we are traveling to the land of the rising sun to deal with one of their first superheroes of the modern era. You might know him as Supergiant, or you might know him as Starman, or you might know him as that public domain show that you see every once in a while on <laughs> clip festivals. So yes, it is Starman, or Supergiant. Or Supergiant. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, this one is sort of a forced march down memory lane for me. I don't know if it is for you, but the Starman movies, at least their American incarnations, were a staple of Saturday afternoon and creature feature television during the late 60s and throughout the 70s. So I saw these films, uh, again, in their dubbed English versions many, many, many times. Did you grow up with these cars? No, I didn't encounter them until after college when I started getting more into world cinema and mm-hmm. started picking out random things off the shelf and i came across the, the something weird double disc right the starman films so you which... greeted them as a cynical jaundiced adult yeah uh-huh. <laughs> i think there's some of the first things i actually reviewed on my site like eight years ago so oh. they're, so the reviews are filled with horrible spelling errors and Awful, awful, awful writing, as opposed to my now just awful writing. <laughs> All right, so everyone be sure to check that out. <laughs> yes, uh, apparently I like them now more than I did then, from what it, I seem to have read. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I don't know if I'm not even going to try and parse what you just said. That was very convoluted. I've become less cynical with age somehow. I'm impressed by your ability to stand at a remove from yourself and observe the the changes like with a cold scientific eye. But uh, yeah, I found that I don't know if I could even say my opinions of these have changed that much. I have a theory about certain kinds of pop culture that you encounter as a child. I think if you encounter something at an age where you're young enough and that that thing is too strange for you to really process that it never really fully assimilates into memory so it never can become too familiar and I feel that way about the Starman movies. Every time I see them it's not so much like this warmly familiar kind of nostalgia even though I'm really fond of them but it's like this moment of oh yeah these really were as weird as I thought yeah. <laughs> I watched all of them again in a very short period of time leading up to us today to record mm-hmm. this. And I enjoyed it. I, I'm glad that I had the, uh, the excuse to watch them again. I thoroughly Yeah. I'm glad I watched them again, too, because when I first, like, if I saw them when I was a kid, I probably would have loved them. But I saw them as an early adult when I hadn't experienced that much of what's out there. And, like, I could see, like, just saw nothing but how they were 
campy and flawed and now looking at him again i recognize all the the stuff some of the directors were doing and some of the interesting things that are there right and how it's buried underneath the americanization of it right but there's still a lot shining through so it's actually i think that's the main thing that made me like a lot of them more even though they're still really flawed and they're really products of their time from the late 50s in right. japan right and they're very low budget they're very yeah. low budget productions, so they suffer from a lot of those kind of shortcomings that really couldn't be helped. But there still is a lot of, you know, like most Japanese films made within the studio system, no matter how ghettoized the genre, how low budget, there's always a certain level of craft and artistry that's brought to them. Mm -hmm. and, uh, well, we should probably talk about, I mean, the Starman movies are something you're either really familiar with from seeing them or you don't really know anything about them at all i mean they're and they're obscure i think more for being i guess minor than they are for being inaccessible unlike mm -hmm. most of the other things that we review these movies are the american versions are in the public domain and you can find them anywhere i mean i think they're on youtube you can get them on the archive.org uh, site they're on a bunch mm -hmm. of those 50 movie packs and then yeah. there was uh, something weird put out a nice double disc set a few years ago uh, with two movies on each that has all of them with a lot of nice extras, one of which was an essay by August Ragone, which supplied most of the background info that we have on it because there's not a whole lot. Uh, yeah. uh, of info about them out there so we definitely need to give him credit for that so basically the, the starman or supergiant films there's actually they were a series of nine films in japan that were uh short serialized films of most of which were 50 to 40 minutes long they got chopped up and edited together into four films for the right. american audience yeah the films were um i mean they weren't serials in the sense of like american movie serials where they were 10 or 12 chapters of like 15 minutes or something the the first six films were two-parters which the american uh, production company took and pasted those together to make a single film and then the last three were standalone films still short still like 45 minutes to 15 minutes long but each telling a an individual story and these were made by Shintoho and they think they were meant as a response or they were inspired by the American Superman TV series Supergiant being kind of a, a Japanese version of Superman and that this was uh, commissioned by the president of Shintoho's Mitsugi mm -hmm. Okura and Tars, I don't know, the impression I get, I didn't know a lot about Shintoho, but looking into the background, it seems like their their name could have been Scab Toho because they're... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of the, I guess I saw it as the non-union wing of Toho, where they basically just threw in all the cheap, I guess, kitty grindhouse type films came out of there and a lot of made for tv type stuff it's basically a bunch of short films that would supplement until the bigger budget things hit the right. theaters apparently the story is that it was started by some toho employees who left during a strike there was a, yeah. a labor shutdown and they began the studio yeah and it seemed like at first they were sort of a branch of toho but it seemed like later they were they became independent they had a distribution deal with toho and that ended and then they were they were gone 
by the mid sixties, I think. So they weren't around mm-hmm. long, but like you said, yes, they, I mean, I think the Starman movies are pretty much emblematic of the type of stuff they put out, you know, low budget, quickly made sort of B programmers. These weren't a features obviously, cause they were only 50 minutes long. And there, uh, there was like a, a mini boom of superhero type programming in Japan at this time. Starman and super giant was the theater, the big theater one, but there's also a bunch of TV shows, uh, including, uh, Geiko Kamen, which we know here as Moonlight Mask. Right. And there's Prince of Space, which actually is a big ripoff of the Starman movies. Uh-huh. And that was a TV series which became movies, which follow the same format as the Supergiant movies. Right. And there's some, the kid with the N on his shirt. Oh, National after, Kid, yeah. Yeah. Actually, the director who directed the, I think the director of the 8th and 9th Supergiant films, his name is Korea Akasaka was the director of the National Kid TV series. So so Starman, I think it, it's pretty seminal. I think it's credited as being Japan's first screen superhero, not its first superhero period, because I think that's Golden Bat. Who I think, I know he has a long history with those carts that they have the picture slides and the Right. Presenter tells stories and there's... He goes back to the 30s and he did eventually end up having a really awesome movie in the mid-60s and a TV series. But Starman was pretty much it as far as uh, on screen for a short period. And then, yeah, there was this boom of of TV Mm -hmm. shows and then some more movies. And you can see, like with the first Starman movie, you can see the Superman influence. It definitely, that dissipates a lot after the first movie. But, uh... There's definitely some things about the Starman character that echoes that. I mean, it, mm-hmm. you know, also he's, if you look at him as sort of the ground zero of all the tokusatsu shows that would come along in the 60s and 70s, but there's definitely some marked differences. For one, he's not gigantic. He's a human-sized man, although, yeah. you know, a burly human-sized guy. And he has sort of an alter ego. They sort of fudge the alter ego thing, <laughs> you know, because he, he has his skin-tight costume, but he also does a lot of his business wearing a black suit and a fedora but he's always Starman. yeah he doesn't have a, a human alter ego and and on those instances where he's in his sort of human suit wearing guys he'll be confronted by authorities and there's a scene in one movie where he gets framed for murder and he's in the uh, interrogation room and he's like extremely guileless because they're like who are you and he's like i am Starman." <laughs> from the emerald planet in the mm-hmm. galaxy hello i'm a robot i'm made of steel bang bang <laughs> <laughs> yeah but we don't i guess the interesting or not the interesting thing the ignorant thing is that we haven't seen the original japanese versions because we don't want to pay the 800 dollars it would cost us to get yeah. <laughs> import dvds but Obviously, the Japanese versions are much longer and may have more information in them. But in the American versions, what we have to go by, we really don't learn very much about Starman. There's not a lot of background. It's like they do refer to him as being made from the strongest steel, but it's never really made explicit whether he's Mm -hmm. a robot or a metal alien or something like that. I hope that, you know, the original versions have detailed biographical information on all the aliens from the Emerald Planet because I really want to know about those guys and their arm waving. Right. Yeah. uh, Yeah. And the star guys who kind of rock back and forth in 
yeah. and like junkies sort of oh yeah the other thing i want to say about starman this was interesting to me that i was thinking about is he's kind of a geek prop like he's this japanese geek property that doesn't seem to have really been embraced by geeks like it doesn't you know maybe it's because it's too old but i don't think i might be wrong but i don't think if i want like a starman action figure for my desk or maybe like a retro style vinyl or something i don't think i mm-hmm. could get that it doesn't seem like you know yeah he's one of the one of the older properties that i don't think has been updated at all right there's never been a gritty reboot or any of that stuff yeah yeah it's weird because like you look at the the old 50s heroes and like some of them will have like a lot of reboot stuff later down the line, especially I guess in the seventies. Right. But yeah, but this one they just left him the rot. Yeah, so. I wonder. What, and and apparently these movies were obviously very popular. There was nine of them, mm-hmm. and there were spinoffs. There were com- there were manja, and there were yeah. storybooks and stuff like that. But it doesn't seem to be something that's been held on to. And you're right, Maybe because the studio is no more. Maybe there's a right. bunch of rights problems or something. Well, yeah, there's nobody who can profit off it that much yet. <laughs> but yeah, characters like Moonlight Mask and all those really early, even National Kid, you can find merchandise that was made in decades afterwards, but nothing for Starman. So you have to make your own Starman toys. I'm sorry. Well, maybe he is public domain and we can just do it ourselves. So That's you know, right. Right. And you'll actually, never, until you get the letter from the lawyers. So, so we're going to end this uh, podcast with a tutorial on how to make your own paper mache life-size starman figure mm-hmm. and 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 body pillow also <laughs> for the ladies <laughs> indeed. so these american versions i oh i get the other thing we should for people who aren't familiar with starman or people who are you know it, it would be sort of an oversight to not mention certain aspects of his appearance one being <laughs> fact, <laughs> one being the fact that he has a, a pretty pronounced package mm-hmm. um this is the old school kind of superhero where he's just wearing like a really tight leotard but he's really packing and this was another thing that was done at the insistence of Shintoho's president who felt that the female movie going audiences of Japan would be mentally enslaved by the sight of Starman's enormous bulge and so mm-hmm. this so they stuffed the actor whose name was Ken Utsui mm-hmm. they stuffed his crotch with cotton balls to yeah. uh, to achieve that effect and that is one of the reasons probably one of a number of reasons that Ken Utsui I'm not sure if he's alive today but he has subsequently refused to talk about Starman movies it was not (laughs) something he has fond memories of and I think he was a pretty big star Uh, you can sort of also see that they're trying to make him the main sex symbol draw for the women because there's no real young male characters of the or like the younger age they're all boys but they always throw in like a teenage girl in most uh Right. Most of the series for the the dads who are accompanying their their kids to the theater. So. Right. Yeah. There's always a well. One of the things I think it said in the August Ragone essay is that one of the inspirations for this, other than Superman, was that Toho had had a successful kid detective serial. So that they, this was a response to that too. So there's always in every movie there's a gang of kids. Mm-hmm. They're sort of inter- they're sort of interchangeable. Like it seems like there's the same bespectacled little girl in the group, but I yeah. in every one they're different characters. And then yeah, there's always the teenage girl in the sailor suit schoolgirl. You know, mm-hmm. sort of a cast. It's not really the same characters, but the same sort of archetypes that show up. In yeah, it's interesting comparing those because I watched the original Princess Space movies, mm-hmm. and they don't have 
really any female characters at all. And the, the one girl character, they're usually just shoved aside for the boy characters because they're obviously directing it right towards the boy. So it's, it was yeah. interesting seeing this was more rounded, was trying to get a more inclusive audience. But I guess they started to give up towards the end. Uh-huh. <laughs> but there's definitely never a love interest for Starman. That would be giving him too much character development. Yeah. Um, and I guess one before we start talking about the American movies, I guess another salient thing about the uh, Supergiant movies is that the first three were directed by Turo Ishii. I hope I'm pronouncing that somewhat, if not right, at least so it's recognizable to people. Mm-hmm. He is most known in the West for doing sort of Euro Guru movies like The Joy of Torture films, and he also did The the Horrors of Malformed Men, which was a Edegawa yeah. Rampo adaptation. Basically, he has a rep for sort of a macabre surrealism which definitely he lives up to with some of the Supergiant movies. But he also, like any uh, director working professionally within the Japanese studio system, was a jack-of-all-trades, and he worked in all different kinds of genres mm-hmm. and did a lot of different things. He also did the Abashiri prison movies for Toei, which were very popular in the 70s. And he had done a boxing movie with Ken Utsui called King of the Ring, and that was one of the things that led to Utsui getting the Starman role. But you definitely see the Ishii touch in some of these movies, which is very interesting. These were obviously a, a work for hire, but he does bring a little bit of a auteur sensibility yeah, to it. Yeah, I'd say probably Invaders from Space, where he's had the most most yes. influence on the, yeah. the deformities and the, yeah. the other stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that one. Shall we talk about what happened to these movies once they came to the United States? Because a lot happened to these movies, I think. Yeah, we're going to move through them mostly in production order, which will coincide with specific U.S. films, which I'm not sure the exact order they were released in the U.S. or if they were in a package deal. But Yeah, they these were picked up by a company called Walter Manley Enterprises, and mm-hmm. they were packaged for American television. And I think maybe they were also distributed outside the U.S by them and Walter Manley also released Prince of Space and Invasion of the Neptune Men too so like I said they took the first six which were each two parters and they patched those together into three films like we said the, each of the individual parts were about 50 minutes long they married these into 75 minute films so quite a lot was cut out mm-hmm. um, and a plus of that is that these films are American versions are, are really pretty fast paced they move pretty fast and then the last three three that were standalones and also one of them was in widescreen while the other ones were full screen they mashed those all together into Mm -hmm. one pretty crazy film and that was the the last one if you think it's going all over the place that's the reason why that one seems to not make a lot of sense does not make a lot of sense no I, I kind of respect it, though. The last one's called Evil Brain from Outer Space. I respect those kind of Franken movies, like the kind of mm-hmm. Gordon Ho, you know, Godfrey, Godfrey Ho. It's, yeah. it's, it's a luxury to forget his name, actually. <laughs> you know, Jerry Warren, people like that, who made a lot of films out of just combining random films together. It's like mm-hmm. they're never good, but it does take a certain level of creativity, and they're impressive in sort of a logistical way. It's like I can't even imagine in some of these cases, like looking at these three movies and just figuring out ways to put them together. And they definitely did some, uh, they made some interesting choices, but, uh, but anyway, yeah. So the first one, shall we launch into these movies? I mean, some we'll talk about more than others. 
Yeah, because some are way more interesting than other yes. ones. Like the first one, Atomic Rulers of the World, or just Atomic Rulers. But Atomic Rulers, people might think it's some kind of radioactive rafting mm-hmm. implement. But yeah, that's, that's what slide rules are for all you old people out there. Right. Uh, let's see, Atomic Rulers is made from the first two films, Supergiant and Supergiant Continues. And it's basically a bunch of a terrorists from a fictitious nation are going to take over the entire world by blowing up major cities everywhere yeah in the in the english version it, it's like a rogue nation of evil white people basically yeah. in the original it was it was a yeah like you said it was a terrorist organization who were sort of performing this nuclear blackmail under the cover of it seeming like it was this innocent country that was doing it but the americans who were uh, editing these downs decided that was too complex of a geopolitical scenario for the young American audience to ingest. Yeah. So they just made it. It's all in the country and they gave people like Russian sounding names mm-hmm. and, you know. Yeah. And the later films get a lot more galactic in scope. This one's a lot more contained. Human nation running amok. So Starman first comes and it's a lot. You it's, can see the buildings for the later films where they get more creative. But for now, he's just coming and like immediately inserts himself into situations. Well, it's yeah, it's very paternalistic. Every one of these movies, the American version has of a very that framework and that they all have the exact same opening credits and then they always have the exact same prologue and anyone who's seen these knows what we're talking about Mm -hmm. where the movie always begins on the emerald planet in the marpet galaxy where the high council is meeting and basically these films are fraught with nuclear anxiety so they're always talking about us so earth if your ears are burning it's because the high council on the emerald planet is talking about how we're fucking up the universe with our nukes so yeah it's always some scenario where they're trying to figure out what to do with the earth because there's some new flarver that's threatening the rest of the universe with nuclear fallout and the council i guess it's supposed to represent a bunch of different aliens from different alien cultures cultures but they're all very uh very strange looking very dada-esque in appearance like they're have these yeah. geometrical shapes and they look like they're kind of made out of cardboard boxes you yeah, know they got lanterns for heads right cones and one of them's wearing a big crown right they yeah, all... they're very dada-esque there's a famous picture of the dada-est yugo ball wearing a suit made out of cylinders and he would be right at home on the high council but yeah that's one thing that really sticks with you and that's definitely something that stuck with me as a kid and so they show them having their meeting and it's always as the the narrator bears a heavy burden in these films because they're so edited down so the english language narrator basically sets up the whole scenario of the Mm -hmm. movie like sets up the conflict while we watch this footage of these people wearing boxes doing these really stylized hand gestures for like five minutes Mm -hmm. and then the solution is always the same is that they decide to send starman who is a creature made of the strongest steel to earth to intervene and Mm -hmm. uh and they give him this thing called the globe meter which is basically a wristwatch which allows him to speak any language on earth 
which I'm glad that they even thought to explain that because most movies yeah. wouldn't. And then uh, a radiation detector, of course, because everything is radioactive on Earth. Mm-hmm. And uh, then, and I guess the ability to fly is that the other thing? Yeah, but I'm not sure if they ever have him not wearing it and then he fly. But it's supposed to be so he can fly. But he mostly just like he flies to Earth and then he'll mess around with planes. But later they right. just have him jumping. Jumping, yeah. There's a moment in uh, Atomic Rulers really early on that is very much a, a Superman moment, where the first thing that happens when he flies into Earth's atmosphere is he encounters a passenger plane that's in trouble and its rudder mm-hmm. is broken. So he he's mightily struggling with the uh, rudder while standing on the wing. And then there's a great scene after that where that's the first time he turns into his human guys, where he's wearing the fedora and he's mm-hmm. wearing the suit, but he's still standing on the wing of this plane. And yeah. I there's even rain coming down it's pretty yeah. awesome also it's because the terrorists are on the plane if they're nuclear right. device if you just let the plane crash you would have solved all the problems so. right exactly they have a yeah. they have a, a briefcase nuke right it's the two evil yeah. white guys with the with the yeah. russian names but uh but back to what we were saying a long time ago is yeah he always just intersects himself into whatever's going on he's the attitude of Starman towards the earth it's a very paternalistic one he cares about us but Mm-hmm. He hates to see how we're screwing things up, and he knows we don't understand that we're putting the rest of the universe in danger. But he's always saying things like, you will die if I do not <laughs> defeat this threat. Yeah, yeah. He also mentions he's friends of children, and this is before the, or I guess the Gamera films are yes, around this. That also shows the paternalistic view. Like, I guess he... Not only is he literally friends to kids, he probably sees all humans as children. Yeah, he kind of does. Yeah, these movies were made between 1957 and 59, and I think the American versions were made in the mid-60s sometime. But yeah, these are definitely before Gamera. So he was the friend of all children before Gamera was. Mm-hmm. The other thing I like about Starman is he's like super stoical. Like, he doesn't convey a lot of emotion, you know, mm-hmm. no matter what's going on, except when he's being attacked. He's just, like, no aura until, like, a bunch of guys with machine guns come out and start shooting at him. Then he's, like, all laughing. Yeah. You no, know, he's like, oh, ha, 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 ha. Yeah. Like, he only laughs at danger. And everything else, he doesn't really have, he doesn't really bear much feelings for anything else. Though he says he cares about the Earth, so... It's just words. He's yeah. a ro- he's probably a robot anyway, so yeah. there's no use no. to attached. So as far as the atomic rulers goes, because it's, it's less scopey than the other ones, it's actually less fantastical and it's more just a lot closer to the Superman TV show. Yeah, where it has the the guy with the superpowers beating up people in suits. Yeah, and, it's pretty yeah. prosaic. It does have a very proto James Bond ending though I must say. Like you can see in these movies where they decide to spend the money and wisely they usually spend it on the bad guy's lair so there's a very mm-hmm. James Bond finale that takes place in the terrorist underground lair and there's like a big old submarine bay with a really futuristic submarine and it's like a scene of Starman fighting off like dozens and dozens of uniform goons with machine yeah. guns and like punching people and throwing them into the water and stuff and it's good i mean it's a well-made fun movie but it is definitely not that different yeah from the superman tv show or even more so like the republic serials uh yeah. you know that kind of action and the fighting is very straightforward which changes yeah. a lot <laughs> over the course of the series yeah this one only has a few big leaps and they do a thing where they'll re- reverse the footage that have them fly back 
backwards when he's jumping sometimes. Yeah, I always and like they, that. Yeah, they do it more in the later films, but they yeah. pioneer the concept here. And the fighting, like all the films have the same serial type fighting where it just goes on and on and on, yes. constantly punching. Yeah, there's like 10 minute fight scenes where he's just fighting. Yeah. Just dozens of guys and of course, but one at a time. You mm-hmm. know? Or sometimes they'll do the thing where four guys will come and crowd in over him and he'll spread his arms out and they'll all go flying. Um, yeah. Good fun, good wholesome fun, which I don't know if I would call Invaders from Space good wholesome fun with Utahs. I'd call it weird, weird, weird. Yeah, it definitely takes a very dramatic shift in tone mm-hmm. when they go into the second movie. Yeah, these are the ones that when you try to explain it to other people, they don't understand what you're talking about. Right. Basically... The salamander men are trying to take over the world through interpretive dance, which right. infects people with a disease. Right. It's it's really dark. Yeah, there's a plague-like disease. It's, it's sort of your invasion, hence the title, but it's your basic invasion from space scenario, except the way that the salamander men conduct their invasion is really insidious. They spread disease, and then they have something where they use a high-pitched sonic beam that drives people crazy, and lots of scenes of children dying. The mm-hmm. Starman or the Supergiant movies were not afraid to show children in peril and they did it mm-hmm. quite often. Yeah, and this one and Attack from Space both have a huge body count for the Earth with cities being blasted off yeah. the map. So Starman's one of those heroes that, you know, millions of people die, right. but the kid who's annoying gets saved. So. Right, exactly. Well, what I do like about Starman is he says, he always says, I will try. I will try to defeat them. I will try and stop the nuclear bomb from going off. He never, ever guarantees. Mm-hmm. He's not one of these superheroes like, I'll save you. He's like, I'm going to try to save you, you know, and it doesn't always work out. So it's good that he's learned to hedge his bets a little. The Salamander Men, there'll be scenes where like they wear a mask because some of them will have normal eyes and then they pull away the mask and you see the deformed mouth. In yeah. the Japanese version, they're called the Kappa Saijins and they're actually based on the Kappa from Japanese folklore, which is kind of a water sprite. Mm-hmm. And they look kind of like that, but obviously they changed them to Salamander Men for the Americans. They have the more full Salamander Men form where they have a huge brain-like head and then they're all like a lizard person right. body with big claws and yeah. the female one is, looks more like a witch from one of the stage productions with her yeah. heavily makeup yeah. so it's a lot a lot of stage influence there which is directly in the film with the dance numbers which right. are pretty crazy yeah well there's a weird mix of genres in this movie and one thing i like about all the starman movies is there's definitely a big film noir influence like there's a lot of them take place at night there's always a bunch of goons and suits and fedoras a lot of really gritty i mean there's a lot of location shooting there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like gritty nighttime urban street scenes and fights that take place in like a disused scrap yard or something like that and i think you see that the most in invaders from space because Mm -hmm. the the, uh, salamander men like you said they have sort of this human guys where they wear suits and they wear uh, crew chiefs over their face so you can't see how deformed they are And it's really scary, too, the way they're filmed. There's a lot of scenes, and these movies were made for kids, but they did not put on the brakes as far as trying to scare Mm -hmm. the shit out of kids because there's a lot of scenes where when they take off their crew chiefs, there's always, it's always this really dramatically underlit view of their faces, like when you hold a flashlight under your face while telling a ghost story. And then there's a a number of times where they sort of break the fourth wall and the monsters will come right into 
into the camera, kind of mm-hmm. peering at you. Yeah, and they have like the sequences where they're chasing children and invading their homes, and like the kids are running, and you could see like even with the Americans throwing like music over part of it, you could see how it'd be really really scary, especially if you were young and in the theater watching it. Right, or even watching it on TV. Yeah, and that witch. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's also a weird uh, sort of Grimm's fairy tale element to it, because like you said, Mm -hmm. there's a scene where the little there's a lot of scenes with just the little kids in the movie. And there's the scene where they're walking through the woods by themselves and they know that the salamander are around and then all of a sudden it gets really foggy and then they see the, the salamander men have a castle and it's this really weird kind of expressionistic castle that sort of looks like a face that you can dimly see through the fog and then all of a sudden the salamander men surround them and start dancing around them in a circle to this kind of tribal music which it, mm-hmm. it feels very Hansel and Gretel and then they sort of make that really explicit when they bring in this witch for no there's no really explanation why one of the salamander men is this witch and she really she's dressed in rags and she has like a gnarled walking staff and she has this horrible laugh and she stalks these kids horrifying it even kind of scares me now i think because i have like a visceral memory of watching it as a kid but it's super super creepy and they use the the witch imagery in a later Starman film too. Yeah, they although do, it's right? not as a, not as effective in that one, I don't think. Because that's the one where they combine the three films, yeah. so everything kind of loses a little. It, you don't really have time to to have much of a response to anything because they're they're throwing something totally unrelated at you the minute you register what's going on in one minute. But also there's these dance numbers and Salamander Men are undercover on Earth as a modern dance troupe and they use Mm -hmm. their performances that's ground zero for spreading this disease that they're spreading the authorities figure out that it's the people who go to these dance performances who are first getting disease and spreading it and the dance sequences are they're amazing i think that true yeah. ishii was kind of having a jess franco moment when he <laughs> you know because not that i mean the the direction is really competent and atmospheric everywhere else but uh, mm-hmm. i felt like you could feel him really snapping to attention in those dance scenes you know, yeah. they're super strange yeah these are the the one things i want to see in the original japanese form are these just to hear them with the original music and to see if any parts of them are chopped out too although right. but they're yeah they're really out there they got characters that are like white on one side and black on the other zooming around and other people in weird masks and, just... and they're, they're doing backflips and a lot of gymnastics but it looks mm-hmm. like the film's been reversed and slowed down so it makes it very dreamlike and yeah, and the set's design is pretty trippy too right and then part of it is filmed through these circles like it's one of those things which they do a lot in old hollywood movies too where it's supposedly supposed to be a stage performance but they film it in a way and use these effects that you could never duplicate in a stage performance so there's a lot of stuff like that but it's uh super freaky and pretty neat the, yeah and as far as the music yeah i know that the walter manley versions they kept some of the music but then they added all this library music and the library mm-hmm. music they added is real weird too kind of like beds of random electronic noise with this very sparse instrumentation i mean i've heard it in other things i mean it's the music that's used and i think i remember hearing it in like old eight-man cartoons and stuff like that but there's an instrument that sounds sort of like a kazoo or someone playing a comb 
sort of trying to play a trumpet fanfare, <laughs> you know, and like dissonant piano, but then there's always these weird, just random electronic noise going on underneath it, mm-hmm. which is great. But like you, I'd be curious to hear what the original score sounded like to some of those scenes, especially that dance scene. So it's not the Starman film I think people should start with. It's I think it's the one they should watch second. Mm-hmm. And the one they should start with, I think, is Attack from Space, because that's the most straightforward Mm. also, because Atomic Rulers, because it's smaller, it's sort of more boring when compared to the the more spacey ones. Yeah, Attack from Space has some neat stuff in it. Now, what was your impression on this? Because the enemy in Attack from Space is sort of this fascist army, Mm -hmm. and the impression I got, in the American version, they make them be from another planet. They're from the Sapphire planet or something like that. But mm-hmm. the impression I got of the Japanese one is that they're actually an earthbound army. Yeah, I think they're originally like from another made-up country. Yeah. But it just, because there's a lot of space elements and it's a lot of, they, they have a space satellite base right. that they're on and they kidnap, uh, the scientists uses rocket engine on their ships, which wouldn't right. make sense if they were from another planet because right. how did they get here? Yeah, and it's another instance of nuclear terror. They have these space platforms from which they're basically blackmailing the Earth that they're going to nuke major cities. You know, Mm -hmm. I guess they're just trying to conquer the Earth. But they definitely have these very exaggerated, they have these kind of black uniforms with the, you know, very Nazi-like. And I think some of the same evil white people who are in the first movie show up as evil white fascists in this movie, too. And I like that the the leader's name is Bundar. Oh, is that what? Yeah, I was trying to make out what that was. That's that's what I wrote down eight years ago, so that's probably... <laughs> I should have referred to your eight-year-old reviews in, in preparing for this. Yeah, but it's very 1950s sci-fi with the look of the rockets and the space platforms, which they call a satellite, even though it's a more like a space station. Yeah, and once again, we have a gang of kids, and, the, and we have yeah. the teenage girl in the sailor suit and uh, all yeah. that stuff, but this time they all stow away with Starman and end up on the major platform. It seems like the whole last half of the movie is just fights on this space yeah. station. Yeah, even the, the teenage girl gets a gun and just starts gunning down people. So. Right. And Starman punches for probably 15 minutes straight at some point. <laughs> yeah, it's just endless, endless punching. So mm-hmm. it's, yeah, it's hard to tell because I noticed in the last movie in uh, Evil Brain from Outer Space, they actually, the Walter Manley in editing that together, they actually used used one entire fight sequence twice during the movie. <laughs> so who knows if they didn't sort of double up on these fights, but it did mm-hmm. seem like there was an awful lot of protracted fighting in the space station in Attack from Space. But it is fun. That one is sort of like a boy's space adventure kind of movie. Yeah, it's like the a lot of 1950s American yeah. film, that type of feel. I guess the TV shows that were on at the time, I can't remember their names. but Oh, like Rocky Jones. And yeah. Like that. yeah, 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 like Rocky Jones. It's a lot like Rocky Jones, except there's kids. Right. So. No, there was a kid on Rocky Jones too. I'm oh, embarrassed yeah. that I'm like <laughs> an authority on Rocky Jones all of a sudden. Yeah. I've only ever seen the the two Mystery Science Theater ones, but I, I know there's they've made like the whole series in the movies. I think. Yeah, there was a time during the 70s when they used to show those Rocky Jones TV shows, and I of course watched them because I would watch any kind of crap like that that came on. But yeah, there was like Little Bobby or something that for some reason they let them go on their space adventures with them. Yeah, 
those are in the serials too. If the, when they go to the undersea kingdom or whatever, there's always right. some kid. Because yeah, you know the hero always has the boy prodigy, so the the kids watching at home feel like they belong. Right, exactly. It's a way for including the kids. Though I'm not sure if parents today would probably frown on that because mm-hmm. it was reckless endangerment of the of the kids. Yeah. So You'd take them to court. Right, but yeah, I don't want the fact that I don't have a lot personally to say about space to to reflect that i didn't like it because i did yeah. but to me it just it sort of yeah. turns into a lot of fighting yeah it's, it's really simple but it's the template and if, i think if you like that template you'll like the rest of the films but if, like sure that was like completely repulsive to you then you should probably steer away yeah and examine yourself if you don't like attack from space because right. something's wrong <laughs> you have a part missing from your life exactly you know and even if you didn't like attack from space i would still give invasion from space <laughs> if you can tell those movies apart because yeah. it didn't really help you out with the super descriptive non-generic titles you mm-hmm. know? in because invaders from space has just this surrealism and creepiness to it that the other ones don't that really stands out and and i agree that maybe it's not the best one to start with but it's certainly the most unique well <laughs> maybe the last one is unique in its own way but invaders from space is still coherent too because it's one where it was a two-part film so all they did was condense it a little bit but the story mm-hmm. is still fairly linear not as linear as attack from space attack from space is very straight yeah. as what happens and the earth is saved from nuclear annihilation once again at the end until evil brain from outer space yes until this earth stupid... once again has a lot of problems nuclear problems I yeah yeah now when you get the evil brain that's the one that's the franken movie made up of three different movies uh you sound like you maybe have the titles written in front of you but i ones like the space mutant appears or something like that or yeah and then there's the devil's incarnation and the poison moth kingdom oh yeah yeah yeah. right in this this is a movie where a heavy burden lies on the shoulders of the narrator who's basically charged with filling all the caulking in all the gaps between the disparate narrative elements and also the prologue on the Emerald Planet takes about three times longer (laughs) than in the other movies. So we're watching the guys with the box heads and the lantern heads doing their sort of Dr. Gory style gesticulating for a long time where the narrator just basically tells like a whole movie plot setting up the movie that's going to come, which actually sounds really good because there's something about a on the planet, blah, 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 a decontrolled robot assassinated the leader, but the Mm. leader brain was so powerful he handed another robot <laughs> to, yeah. to remove his brain yeah there's a lot of that but the so the setup is that there's this disembodied brain of an evil alien that's come to earth to yeah. to lead the invasion in a suitcase course, too suitcase and we never see the brain because there's nothing in the original movies about a brain it's just that the brain the idea that the brain is telepathically communicating to its minions and spies throughout the earth gives them an excuse to have the narrator explain why something totally random is happening Mm -hmm. so the narrator's like at this moment 
the brain of Balazar commanded a bunch of lizard men to attack Starman and the children. And then so we have a scene of that happening. And then it's something else random happens. Yeah. And then there's the, the one movie had the scientist who brought his daughter back to life and she became a witch who would attack children. Yeah. And so they work that in. And then the last movie has the people dressed up in what I thought were bat costumes, but are apparently moth costumes. Yeah, I thought they were and, bats too. Yeah. And I guess they're trying to take over the world. So they just work them in as the brains army people yeah we get three mad scientists in this movie mm-hmm. one guy has an eye patch and is in a wheelchair with a hawk on his shoulder <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the guy whose face is kind of burned mm-hmm. there was another there were three mad scientists it's like it's kind of like the 12 days of christmas we had three mad scientists there were two different groups of kids yeah <laughs> <laughs> that are you know are mostly identical which is confusing mm-hmm. there wasn't and i don't know if there was the girl and the teenage girl in the sailor suit i don't know if we had any of those in this movie but i don't remember one but there there may have been one that was just there but not right featured because all her stuff was cut out in favor of which people or right because there's a lot of stuff there's one point in the narration where it's like at that point such and such the brother of the other mad scientists it's mm-hmm. almost like the guy is just making it up as he goes along mm-hmm. and there's three layers there's like three super villain layers which is pretty cool and yeah and then there's sort of like you see the conclusion to every movie so there's like a trio of big fights in the lair the final one being the fight with the moth guys and it's the same fight we already saw at the first half hour of the movie you see the same guy thrown through a wall another mm-hmm. guy gets thrown in a puddle of like three inches of water and he's like flailing around like he's drowning it's kind of hard to miss but then there's like some weird mutant creature that's involved in that too it's pretty so, insane yeah and it's it's a nice try but it's just a little nuts so. it's, not, it's not boring but if you like things to be coherent or you like a yeah. narrative but uh as i said godfrey ho fans might get a lot out of it you know if you yeah. like the good franken movie it has some good visuals not in like atmospheric style but in like mostly the different costumes and makeup that the different mutants or witch people or bad guys are wearing right there so. are those other bad guys that are one of the story the movies had something to do with like a fictional middle eastern kingdom or something and yeah so they're all these guys in turbans but they have no eyebrows for some reason there's like this whole bunch of guys with no eyebrows and turbans and yeah there's actually villains like that on the princess space tv series mm. although i think these films the last set came out after the princess space tv series oh, okay. aired. so they may have stolen that from the princess space tv series which stole everything thing from the earlier Supergiant films. No so, honor among thieves. Yeah, but maybe not. I don't know. I haven't seen the original Princess Space right. TV series because right. that costs just as much as the original right. Supergiant stuff to bring over. Right. Well, yeah, we'll we'll do an annotated version of this podcast once we've got hold of the original uh, Supergiant movies and gotten fan subs for them and, and watched yeah. all the original versions of the Iron Sharp and Prince of Space movies. Yeah. Set up a Kickstarter, so right, twenty thousand dollars. That's an excellent idea. We should. That would be. 
that would be a really worthwhile Kickstarter. So yeah, the Starman series, uh, at least in its uh, uh, English incarnation, I wouldn't say it, it maybe doesn't end with a bang, but it doesn't end with a whimper. It just ends with kind of a big mess. Um, yeah. Enjoyable. But uh, mm-hmm. again, I'd say my favorite would be Invaders from Space, but I do think it has a lot more impact if you watch one of the more prosaic entries like Attack from Space or even maybe Atomic Rulers firsthand so you can get a little bit of the, of the rhythm and a, and a sense of the character of Starman first. Yeah, and I like Attack from Space just because it's more spacey, I guess, for the type of pulp space stuff I like and then Invaders from Space would be a close second just because it's so visually awesome Yeah, even though the story is so all over the place and then and then I guess Evil Brain from from Outer Space after that because of the the awesome bat people costumes yeah you're right it's all just visual things the bat people costumes that mutant with the exposed brain and an eye all on his stomach that and also I, I gotta mention too that starting with Invaders from Space they start doing these things where the fight scenes become very balletic if that's the word where that's there's a lot of dance incorporated in the fight scenes yeah. especially when starman's fighting the aliens there's a lot of flipping and and it's mm-hmm. all synchronized flipping and very kind of graceful and not a lot of actual punching which is funny after the first movie where it's just punch 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 yeah. In, this, in these later moves, there's a lot of these very dreamy, dance-oriented fight scenes. And there's some of that in the last movie, too, in the fight where he fights the mutant. Because the mutant's already wearing, like, a full-body leotard. They look like dancers already, so it, mm-hmm. it looks like a ballet. Yeah, it's probably the same other guy who can do all the flips with yeah. in Utsui, and then they just work together and do all the same films. Yeah, that couldn't be Utsui, because, yeah, that guy does, like, about a dozen sequential backflips without a cut in one of those fights scenes it's pretty pretty impressive stuff yeah in full makeup too so. exactly and burdened by his gigantic crotch so <laughs> so he's not really weighted like a, yeah. his weight isn't distributed like a normal person so you have to mm-hmm. figure in into the physics of those actions you have to figure in that yeah that, and he keeps knocking stuff knocking <laughs> stuff off the shelf so. yeah. yeah exactly But finally, the Emerald Planet stopped dealing with Earth because they finally got fed up with sending Starman there every week. Right. And as we all know, we've all died from nuclear annihilation without Starman's help. Yeah, I mean, they just figured a way to shield themselves from all our excess radiation. But yeah, every one of the episodes, of course, ends with Starman leaving and saying, once again, the Earth is safe from nuclear annihilation and Starman Mm -hmm. flies off and the kids wave bye-bye. But then you know the next one yeah the council is always like all right well they're doing it again you know let's go Mm -hmm. on starman but yeah i would think they would get sick of that after a while you know or in the starman universe they just finally nuke the earth to (laughs) (laughs) that's it so starman he's out there if you want to watch him and he's pretty easy for you to hold of we'll probably have links all over the place Sure. In our posts, just because. But remember, listen to the podcast first because we're more important than the actual films. Right. You're really getting more of the experience by listening to us talk about it. Yeah. Also, you'll get that crucial background information that'll make it, yes. it'll enrich the experience so much more. So, once again, this episode of the Infernal Brains is a sponsored episode by our friend Monster Island Resort Podcast. Hey, so, Miguel. Yeah. We'll play his, his promo right now, I guess. So. <laughs> And here's his pro. For lovers of horror to come together and celebrate the importance of fear in film, art, 
literature, comics, and history, Monster Island Resort is the perfect online audio vacation spot. And now, you too can do the Transylvania twist with a new segment of monster music, hosted by Strange Jason of the great Six Foot Plus and Gravedigger's Local 16. If you love classic monsters, kaiju, science gone wrong, slashers, and more, then join your host, Miguel Rodriguez, on Monster Island Resort, the online radio show that goes bump in the night. Listen on monsterislandresort.org, iTunes, or Stitcher Radio. As Miguel knows, Infernal Brains promos bring both good luck and sex magic, so uh, if you'd like to trade promos with us or just tell us we suck, contact Tars Tarkas or myself via one of our respective websites, either tarstarkas.net or diedangerdiediekill.blogspot.com. So join us again next time and bring your stuffed crotch along as we go to <laughs> the next genre around the world that will be full of films that you need to immediately track down that you've never heard of. Sounds, sounds good. <laughs> uh, thanks for joining us. Yeah. And we have to go now because radiation has been detected and Earth is in trouble again. Again, and we don't have Starman to save us anymore. So yeah, we're he just, rusted up. So we're just going to go into the basement and do a lip sync video to Call Me Maybe and hope that things are okay by the time we come out of our shelter. So we will talk at you next time on the Infernal Brains. Thank you for joining us. Adios, suckers. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>